Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Well, I'm looking forward to today. We're going to wrap up Ruth chapters 3 and 4. Hopefully you've read through the book. It's a great book. It's a small book. Easy to read. If you haven't done it, when you go home this week, give it a shot. Read through it. It's good stuff. The series is Refuge, and uh, today the title of the message is The Romance of Ruth. The Romance of Ruth. Now, let me give you a little bit of a backstory here to catch you up. In case you missed last week, Joshua Donald covered the first couple chapters. But we're looking at basically chapters 3 and 4. And you're going to find that this is probably the strangest marriage proposal in the Bible. If you're looking for... If you're looking out for ways to ask someone to marry you, the strategy that Ruth employed will probably most likely be at the bottom of your list. Um, But a brief, let's review the characters. There's two main characters, actually, Ruth, who is a Moabite girl and who was widowed, and Boaz, who... Uh, as a single older gentleman, he's a landowner, a businessman, and he's a godly man, and he's a good leader. Now, uh, they, I would be tempted to say fall in love, but that would be incorrect. They, as an attraction, there's an attraction that happens. He notices this lady on the fields and has eyes for her. And that's kind of how it works, right? We don't helplessly just, oh, I just helplessly fell in love. Come on. We have an attraction. God's given us a gift of attraction, which you can be in control of. And then when that attraction happens, then you grow in love as the Lord leads you, right? You're going, I don't don't know about that. Yes, that's how it works. You just don't helplessly, out of control, fall in love. That's just not how it works, okay? Um, So they they have this attraction happening, and... Uh, Naomi, who's the mother-in-law of Ruth, gives her some questionable advice that we'll look at later. Now, okay, three primary characters, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, right? Naomi lived in Bethlehem, which was called the house of bread. That's what that means, serving the God of the Bible with the God people of God. And... Uh, they, there was a, a famine, a severe famine. Actually, it was about a decade long. It was really tough. Bad times. So Naomi's husband, uh, Elimelech, decided to move away from God's people and leave Bethlehem. Not a very wise, good leadership, spiritual uh, decision that he made because he moved her to a place called Moab, which worshipped idols, and they would lead the people of God astray. So you've got two sons with them, and these two sons marry Moabite women who don't serve the God of the Bible. The women are Orpah, I always think of Oprah, Orpah and Ruth, right? And then tragedy strikes, and this is where we, you know, last week we talked about how setbacks lead to setups, the setup of God, the goodness of God coming into the picture, and we see this even continue to unfold as we look forward, but it begins with this setback. Tragedy strikes. Elimelech is the father who dies, and his two sons soon afterwards die, and that leaves three widows, who have no children, they're poor, they're destitute, they're grieving, and they have no support system and no family. That brings us uh, to these three ladies to a critical major decision point in their life. Orpah decides that she's going to return to Moab to her people. They worship idols. 
And Naomi decides she's going to make the long journey all the way back to Bethlehem to be with her people and the people of God and the God of the Bible. Now, Ruth is sitting there wondering what should she do next, and something happens. She makes a commitment to God at this point. She says, your God will be my God. She has this conversion that happens and decides to commit herself to the God of the Bible and to follow Naomi, her mother-in-law, back to Bethlehem, pledging her her loyalty. Now, the story now embraces these two widows who are poor, they're grieving, they're hungry, and they've got no one, which brings them to a very desperate place in life. And so they begin to lean on God's provision. And what was God's provision back then? Well, in God's provision, the Old Testament law, uh, it um, allowed for um, people like who are poor, who are aliens, who are destitute, who are orphans, because God cares for the destitute. It allowed for people like that to glean the fields during harvest time. The margin of the fields were left available in the corners for those who had nothing, who were destitute by the landowners, so that they could survive. It was part of the provision. It was a really great setup. Now, Ruth heads to the fields at this time, and she's looking for an opportunity to glean from the harvest and uh, so that her and Naomi could survive during this time. And she ends up in a field owned by Boaz. Now, Boaz is a single older man. He's successful. He's a businessman. He's a godly man. And he's a good leader. And he happens to uh, be an extended relative of Elimelech, which was Naomi's husband, which was her father-in-law. So you see all of this ties together. And now this setback, you begin to see the setup begin to happen. Then there's the attraction, right? He sees this gal, Ruth, out in the field and... He begins to take notice of her, and he starts asking about her, and, and he acts generously and kind towards her, and he tells the men not to harm or hurt her in any way or harass her. And then uh, on one occasion, he invites her to his table for a dinner, for a meal, as a friend. So you can see there's obviously this attraction developing and going on there. And then some time passes. Quite a bit of time rolls on, and people are just business as usual, going through the day. She's gleaning on the fields, and Boaz is watching. Watching her and things are unfolding, and then finally it's harvest time, right? Which is a big deal for Boaz, the landowner, which brings us to this crazy idea. Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, has this wild and crazy idea to take advantage of this harvest and play matchmaker. How's that song go? Matchmaker, matchmaker. Well, there she is. She's going to strike by the iron's hot. This is an opportunity for her, right? So she begins to launch her plan, which brings us to the first passage of Scripture. We're going to read six verses, and Steve, you'll have to leave it up there because I just, I'm just going to have to have some comments going on through. There's going to have some commentary happening here. But anyway, it says, One day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be provided for. Now Boaz, with whom women you have worked, is a relative of ours, and tonight he'll be winnowing barley in the threshing floor. Now why do you think Boaz is so attracted to for Naomi? Why do you think she's got her attention on him? I'll, t- I'll tell you why. He loves God. He's a godly man, and he's got a job. Those are two pretty important things. Now, women, if you're single out there, that should be the top of your list. He should be ferociously following Jesus, and he should be a hard worker. He's employed, right? And, uh, man, if you're out there and you're single, you know, ferociously follow Jesus and 
keep your jobs, right? Okay, that's good. We got that. That's the first point, right? Okay, now let's move on. It says, um, wash and put on perfume and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he finishes eating and drinking. Now, I'm not really sure this is the kind of advice a parent would want to give their daughter. Get all cleaned up, make yourself smell really good, and after the guy's had a few drinks, then make your move. <clears throat> okay, well, it gets even dicier. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Okay, when the guy's horizontal, young lady, <laughs> snuggle up to him. I know. Um, let, me, let me continue. Just hold on. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he'll tell you what to do. Oh, boy. Um, now they're supposed to both be in a horizontal position next to each other, lying down. And now she's supposed to wait for further instructions from the guy. Now, if you're a dad here and you got daughters, you're starting to go, I don't like where this is going. All right? Okay. Well, Ruth answers. She's, I don't know, she's just naive or what, man. She's like, I'll do whatever you say. <laughs> so now look at this. Ruth's been out working in the fields, man. She's dirty. She, her hair is up. She's got dirt in her fingernails. She's pitted out. She's been sweating. It's hot. You know, and Boaz is looking at her going, hmm, yeah, I kind of like what I see, you know. And now she has an extreme makeover. And Boaz has already got eyes for this gal. Now she shows up all smelling good, dolled up, ready to, you know. And she arrives at the threshing floor. Now let's look at the threshing floor just for a moment. What's so big about the threshing floor? Well, this is a big deal back then, right? Because they, they, this is where you take your wheat, you throw it up in the air, the chaff blows away, all the wheat falls to the ground, it's heavy, and that's payday, man. That is profit. That's what they've been working for, right? Now they've had a decade drought, right? Now they got a harvest. This is awesome. The workers are gathering around like they would normally do during this time. I mean, they're celebrating, they're getting paid, they're eating, and there's probably some drinking going on. And, and on top of that, it's not uncommon for women of questionable motives to show up when guys are getting paid. You know where that goes anyway. And uh, so this is not really the place for a young woman to be, right? And yet here's Ruth, all dolled up and smells really good. And she's preparing to lie at Belle's feet. This is where I would say, is this scandalous? Or is this faith? Scandal or faith? Many would say, ah, scandalous. How could she follow? What were they thinking when they were doing this? What kind of a plan is this anyway? Some would say, oh, no, this is faith. This is courage. Because she was one of those uh, noble women, like in Proverbs 31. And then she was the kind of woman who had a character. And she was, look, when you're living by faith, sometimes you got to take risks. And so you could go either way on this. You could bounce back or forth. Well, I don't know if I would, but then this is a bold faith move. And, and you know, she's grounded and she can do this. And, and uh, we kind of wrestle with passages like this. They, they, they're complicated. Ruth obviously doesn't sin. We know how the rest of the story goes. But how she was instructed to go about this is, is a bit sketchy. Now, this look, here's the deal. The Bible oftentimes tells us what exactly happened but it doesn't tell us maybe what we should what should have happened or what we should do and, and 
I just think God is so secure that he sees, he lets us see how things really played out in the lives of people because the Bible is such an honest book. I mean, it just reveals the messy parts of people's lives. It throws it out there, the stories. He doesn't hide anything because life is messy. And this causes us, I think, when you see passages like this, to search out the whole counsel of God's word to find out, well, what really should I do? I mean, think about your own life just for a moment with me because we're all in here imperfect. We've made mistakes. We've fumbled the ball. Have you ever had something happen in your life where you look back and you wonder, I don't know, man. I don't know if that was really wise. Maybe that wasn't the best counsel I got. I mean, it seemed okay at the time when I did it, but then now I look back and I think, I don't know if I'd tell my kid to do that. I mean, that was kind of, and you got your doubts, right? And, and life is like that. It's not real clear all the time, especially when it involves relationships. Things get messed up. But on the journey, like I said, you may not make the best decisions, but God is gracious. He's good. He's faithful. We do our best at times to follow him. And sometimes we still fumble the ball and God is good and he works with us and he helps us to recover. We all make bad decisions. Things somehow still worked out. That doesn't mean that what you did was good. What it means is God is good. Amen. God is so good and gracious. He is so far beyond what we could even comprehend in his goodness. Which brings us to Ruth chapter 3, verse 6 through 13. Again, we'll have commentary. Okay. So, she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. And when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. We're thinking, they're going to sleep around the grain? Come on, don't these guys have homes they can go home to? Well, back then, that's not uncommon to have the people, the workers, sleep around the grain. They had to protect it from the thieves, right? This is harvest time. This is payday. Big deal. Goes on. Roots approaches quietly. Okay? <laughs> okay, everybody's asleep. They're like snoring and stuff. And she's like. <laughs> and she's sneaking over to this guy. And it says in the middle of the night. I mean, they are just in a full snore. And she starts. She, it says. Um, in the middle of the night, something startled the man because she approached him to uncover his feet, right? And he turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Now, you got an older single guy here who's available, wakes up in the middle of the night to find a woman at his feet. Now, let me just ask you something here. Let's just be real. What kind of a man would find that tempting? One who's breathing. <laughs> right? Okay, just being real. So he says, who are you? He asks. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Okay, now, um, she's not saying, actually, just marry me. What she's saying is, boy, you know, if, if you'd like to marry me, I'm letting you know, it'd sure be okay with me. I mean, it's kind of like an engagement ring, right? So the offer's out there, and she makes it really clear. And then he goes on to say, well, the Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. 
All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. That's the same kind of terminology used in Proverbs 31. So she's obviously a, got a great reputation, a character of a really upstanding woman, and he's a godly guy. And the Bible says don't be unequally yoked together in Corinthians. So they're both looking pretty equally yoked. I think they're off to a pretty good start. Although it's true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there's another who is more closely related than I. Okay, the law required that if, of course, the men perished in the family, somebody had to step up, and the law required the closest legal right one, the one who's legally, the legal first closest one relative, a lot of times it was a brother, would step in, marry the gal, and purchase the properties and assets and take care of all that stuff, and that's how it was done. But he uh, acknowledges that he could be that kinsman redeemer, and he is one of the guys, but he's a more distant relative because there's a mystery man out there who's closer, which creates a problem, a problem for this relationship that seems to be unfolding at the time. Somebody else has a first right of refusal. So he says, stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as a guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if not, if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So here's what we have here. This is an interesting scenario. Just look at this. I mean, you got a woman who asks a man to marry her. He agrees. That's a bit unusual. You've got uh, another scenario. You have a foreigner who's asking a Jew to marry her. Extremely unlikely. But anyway, uh, if you look a little closer, you have an employee asking her boss to marry her. And then on top of that, you've got this younger woman who approaches an older man at midnight on the threshing floor to ask for his hand in marriage in a sense. All that just seems really crazy, but the Bible does say God's ways are above our ways, and he is working behind the scenes, and he is moving the parts. Things are happening. And so... I want to take a few moments now and take Boaz and Ruth and fast forward them to the 21st century. Eh, maybe they're living next door to you. But here they are. What would they do? Would they be tempted to cross the line? Would they be struggling with that right there? Would they be going, what should we do? You know, we really like each other. And, you know, it is, we're in love anyway, so we might as well just, you know. And see, the big issue, this is a big issue for singles today because people are wondering, where is the line? I think that's the wrong question. I don't think the question is, where is the line? I think the question is, what is the time? Because the Song of Solomon says, do not arouse or awaken love until it's time. And it's not necessarily where the line is, but what is the time? And I'm going to tell you what the time is. The time is marriage. The time is marriage. The time is God's design. The time is in Genesis where God said, God said, God said, God said. Are you ready? He says, uh, man will leave his father and mother and be united or joined to his wife. In other words, come into a covenant marriage and the two will become one. That's a supernatural act of God that he does. And later on in the scriptures, Jesus and Paul both echoed this, reinforced it, quoted it to verify and to clarify what almighty God has already said. That never changes. In other words, you get married. Then you enter into this covenant marriage before consummation. Boy, you don't want to get those things backwards. It's covenant, then consummation. You should not have any intimate physical relationship before you're married. 
Ephesians 5.3 says this, But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. There must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. I want you to remember that. Okay. If you cross the line before you got married, people do that. God is amazing. You come clean, you repent, you come to Jesus, you're honest. What's he do? He restores, he heals, he recovers. God is amazing. He changes your life. He changes us daily. But today, let's, here's both Boaz and Ruth. Maybe they would be pressured to move in with each other. Maybe, maybe, um, uh, look, this is what many marriages are actually doing today. Uh, marriages are being preceded by living together. I heard a statistic. Uh, it's just astounding. I heard, first of all, that singles are waiting longer to get married. And nine out of ten are cohabitating before they marry. That's just astounding. I, I was like, Really? In our culture, people would say, Ruth, look, you don't have a place to live. You need someone to take care of you. Just, just move in. Somebody's calling somebody. Okay. Just move in, right? Just move in because, you know, he's a wealthy guy, and he'll, he'll take care of you, and it'll be okay. You guys like each other anyway. Come on. What are you waiting for? You're both adults, and everybody's doing it. You know, just see if it works out. See if you guys are compatible. Just test drive the relationship. That's all you got to do. Boy, we hear that a lot today, don't we? Pressure, pressure, pressure. The devil's working overtime. Well, statistically, let me show you, throw you some hard facts. If you live together before you're married, the rates of a divorce, depending on what study you're looking at, is 33 to 151% higher. Isn't that astounding? In other words, if you're cohabitating or living together, that means that you're preparing for divorce and not marriage, according to the statistic. Why, why, why does it work that way? Well, I'll tell you what. Um, when you're married, God said the two will become one. Now, there's a something supernatural. It's a miracle that God does. He takes two people and he actually makes them one. Not like this, but like this. There's a holy union that happens that only God can do. And when you're not in covenant, when you haven't taken that step, when you've done it on your own terms and not on God's terms, you will remain separate. There's no way that two people can become one without the covenant of marriage. It's just not going to happen. People can try to make it happen. They can cohabitate and say, we're really one. No, you're not. God, that's a curse you're under. You're not under God's blessing. Because when you forfeit God's way, you end up with confusion and chaos and disintegration and destruction. And that's what happens. Because there's a curse and it's not a blessing. You can't live as one when you're actually two. Well, let me give some more statistics. Those who live together have depression rates that are three times higher than couples that are married. Isn't that crazy? I'm not making this up. Let me give you another one. Women who are cohabitating are twice as likely to be assaulted and nine times likely to be murdered than a woman who is married. This is blowing me away. 
See, God's way is the best way. God's way is the blessed way. God's way is the eternal way. God's way is the right way. It's not old-fashioned, and it's not outdated. It's God's way. Now, Boaz and Ruth chose God's way, and you see, when they took God's way, his eternal way, man, did they get blessed. They stepped right into the blessing of God. Because the spiritual is the foundation of marriage. The physical will rest on the spiritual. If you have not taken care of the spiritual first and established it God's way on his terms, then you've got nothing to stand on but sinking sand. You build your house on the rock. You build it on Jesus Christ. God's way works. God's way is blessed. Why, why, why do we cater and cave to the culture when the culture is absolutely 100% broken? Hmm. Well, the physical will rest on that. And you want your physical and your emotional to rest on. Let me tell you what. Let me get couples who have the lowest divorce rates. Let me give you another statistic. Let me just throw this out there. The ones who have the lowest divorce rate have the greatest joy. The longest rates of marital satisfaction are Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, praying, church-attending Christians. Yes! You know... June 17th, coming up, Lori and I will celebrate our 40th anniversary. I'm telling you what, 40 years, can you believe that? Well, how old were we when you got married? I don't know, but we look like we were 12. That's all I got to say. But let me tell you something. We are more in love than ever, and we are doing life together, and we wouldn't want it any other way and couldn't imagine it any other way. And we love Jesus, and we attend church regularly. We do pray. Read our Bibles. You know, that sounds kind of religious. You can call it whatever you want. I call it disciplines that lead to delight. Yes. I call it living for Jesus and drinking in the blessing, man. I love living under the blessing. Okay. I've said enough about that. But let's see. Let's see. This leads to the legacy because Boaz refers to Ruth also. It's something interesting in here. Um, because, look, first of all, God's word will never restrict us. But it prevents us from harm and provides us with a pathway of future success in God at his highest potential. And Boaz refers, again, to, to Ruth as a daughter several times. It's interesting. And that's how he sees her. He sees her as God's daughter. As a matter of fact, he treats her because of that like he would want any man to treat his future daughter one day. That's the kind of stand-up guy he was. And because of that, he treated her with honor, respect, and dignity. He refused to violate her on the threshing floor. That's how he saw her. Because you and I, we need to see each other first in our identity to God before our identity to each other. When you see each other in your identity to God as a son of God and a daughter of God, you want to respect and honor and treat with dignity. You will not want to violate or cross that line. Because this is a precious person created in the image of God that belonged to him, Father God. Got to answer to Father. Okay, so we see, we see each other how God views us. And this relationship, honor and respect win the day. Which leads us to this legacy because that's what Boaz, Boaz wanted to leave a good legacy. He, he was not looking for a good time. 
God is a generational God. He works through the generations. He'll always do that and always has done that. And we need to think generationally as well and be looking towards a good legacy. Because a good way to destroy a good legacy is simply to live for a good time. And he refused to do that. Boaz and Ruth did it God's way on his terms. They got married. They had a son. His name was Obed, who became the father of Jess, who became the father of David, and on down the line until finally Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Man, that's a legacy. Woo! All right, Ruth chapter 3, verse 14 through 18. We're going to do some more commentating. All right, here we go. So she laid at his feet until morning and then got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. Here you see Boaz protecting her reputation. He also said, bring me your shawl, your wear, and hold it out. And when she did so, he poured it into six measures of barley and placed it on the bundle on her. And that's about 80 pounds. Boy, that's generous. Extremely generous towards Ruth. Then he went back to town, and then Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she asked, look, how to go, my daughter? And then she told her everything that Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Again, Boaz is generous. He's concerned about Naomi, a woman that he's never even met. Remember way back, Naomi changed her name to Bitter because of all the loss and the hard times that she was going through. So you have an empty, bitter woman, and Boaz is pouring life into her. Just the kind of guy. What a lesson for us. All through the story, you see Boaz pouring life into people, into his, his, his uh, laborers, and blessing people. And he was a contributor. He wasn't a taker. This is a great lesson for us and a great picture of grace being poured out. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. So Boaz is a man of God. He follows the law. There's two women that need to be redeemed, helped, and recovered. And he wants to marry Ruth. Although there's another relative out there who has the first legal position. A relative of Elimelech. And he's the qualified kinsman redeemer and so Boaz now faith has to kick in he's trusting God he's going to do everything right but you could just tell this guy is trusting God and wanting to be the kinsman redeemer but he knows he has to do things right to fulfill that role and so what does he do well he he steps into this realm of faith where faith tastes takes risks. And that's often what faith does. Faith, faith, um, it's, it takes risk with God, but it leaves the results with God in his hands. Boaz, had, he had promised to marry her if he could. And if he could, those words are still hanging in the air at this point. Where's this mystery man? They got to wait for him to show up. He's got the first right of refusal. We got to talk to him first. God, I'm trusting you in this. We're going to do everything by the book, though. I'm not taking advantage of her, and I'm not taking advantage of this guy. I'm just going to do it like God. And so what does he do? He, run, he goes to the city gate. He's, Naomi said, my daughter, wait until you find out. Matter of fact, that word wait means to sit down. It means to sit tight. You know, sometimes the godliest thing you can do is just to sit down and wait. 
It's a good word for singles, isn't it? Sit tight. Wait on God, man. Just wait on God. Trust him. Trust him. Trust him for your days ahead, right? Not easy to do. Sometimes, look, waiting is not wasted time when you're waiting on God. And so faith waits for what it wants. Sometimes it's the hardest thing we can do. But faith waits on the Lord. And you see this whole waiting behind the scenes going on. Ruth waits for Boaz to take care of the matter. Now, Boaz is a man of action. He gets, hightails it down to the city gate. Now, the city gate was equivalent to the main street. It's where all the merchants, farmers, and people would pass through the gate. It was a place where business would happen, transactions, acquisitions, all that would take care of there. And the elders would gather at the city gate because they would be called on to be witnesses, legal witnesses. Boaz needs 10 of these elders, these men serving as witnesses in an attempt to redeem Naomi's land and to take Ruth as his bride. And so there's only one problem. There's that mystery man. Man, I could just see him sitting there. Okay, God, I'm trusting you in this and waiting for this guy. He's eventually going to show up. And sure enough, he does. And when he does, he comes through the gates and Boaz calls out to him and says, Hey, friend, come, let's talk. And the guy comes over and sits down and they don't know his name. It's not in the scripture. He's just this mystery man. And he gets this offer, right? Boaz starts with the good news. Ruth 4.4. He says, then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought that I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not tell me, so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you. And I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Boaz stops. Did you say you will redeem it? The guy says, I will. I will redeem it. I can imagine that at that point, Boaz's heart probably sank. He had the first right. He's doing everything according to the law. Boaz could only redeem it if he turned it down. Now, this was a good deal on its face value here. The guy could pick up the land. He could add it to his estate. And when he died, he could pass it down to his descendants. Good deal now. Great deal later on. And so the guy says, yes, I'll redeem it. Of course. Of course, there's a catch because this came with the package. It was a package deal, right? It's like, uh, oh, by the way, uh, you get Ruth and um, her bitter mother-in-law. She comes with a deal too, so. <clears throat> now, um, that also meant if he bought the land, he'd have to marry Ruth and have a, have, a, have a child. This complicated the factor quite a bit here because the man suddenly changes his mind. Verse 6, he says, And this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot, I cannot redeem it because it might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I cannot. This probably meant that he was already married, he had children, and uh, they would be his natural heirs of the property. Adding Ruth and his son to this whole mix would probably complicate everything. And so the mystery man says, no, I have an opportunity of a lifetime, but I'd just be inheriting a headache. I just can't do it. Can't do it. Can't afford it. And he says to Boaz, take my right of redemption, because I cannot. I think Boaz at this time is trying not to smile. He's... 
trying to be real serious. Well, if you say so, oh, darn rats, you know. Uh, and, and, but Boaz, you learn so much from this guy. A godly man, he understood the importance of integrity, trusting God, waiting on God, refused to violate Ruth, refused to violate this mystery man, but stood firm in his conviction. Didn't take advantage of anybody in the process. And he's a wealthy guy. And here you got Ruth committing herself, loyalty to her mother-in-law, loyalty to God through this whole thing, trusting those around her, trusting God to work in the situation, waiting in faith. Two people walking with the fear of God. It's pretty powerful. Soon they're going to be married. There's a wedding. There's childbirth. Generations are going to come and go. And the road will ultimately lead to Jesus Christ. That part of the story is hidden from Ruth. She had no idea that that was going to happen. And I would challenge you today, when you settle your life to ferociously follow Jesus, live life on his terms, live in his blessing, there are things that are hidden from you in your future that you don't even know about yet. And it's going to be amazing. Never forget that. God is up to something. He's up to something. Got to trust him in that. That's the faith journey we're on. Something he's going to do of powerful things in the days ahead. It's just how God works. His blessings increase. Glory to glory, strength to strength. Well, near the end of the story. Our eyes are now focused on God behind the scene because we see what's happening. They live happily ever after. You know, Ruth really is the Cinderella story of the Old Testament. This ever after part stretches from Ruth and Boaz, who live in Bethlehem, to another young couple in Bethlehem's stable, Mary and Joseph, who will give birth to Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, our kinsman redeemer. You know, they called their son Obed, that means, well, they called him the family redeemer, Boaz. The same thing he used to describe himself as the family redeemer, kinsman redeemer. And this young boy would grow up to care for his mother one day and carry on the lineage. And God's purpose would be unveiled as it spans the generations all the way down to Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer. All the worship team come out. Boaz willingly redeemed the land and the woman he loved. The Old Testament kings and redeemer had three requirements. First, they had to be qualified to redeem. Second, they had to be able to redeem. And third, they must be willing to redeem. Boaz did in a very small way what Jesus Christ did in a huge, massive way. Jesus Christ was qualified through his incarnation. God became man. He was able by his deity. He was Jesus Christ, the son of God. And he was willing by his death on the cross. Therefore, Jesus, born in Bethlehem, the story starts where Ruth's stories end. And he is our kingsman redeemer. Jesus, our kingsman redeemer. He purchased us with his life. He redeems us. He cares for us. He provides for us in a multitude of ways. We are the church. We're called the bride of Christ. And every one of us here, 
we have our own Cinderella story because Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's stand together. Thank you, Lord. We just take a moment here. I would, I would pray, Lord Jesus, as your word has been released over our lives today, that we'd be reminded of the power of your word, that it has shaping power. There's destiny in your word when we follow it. There's legacy when we follow it. There's great blessing when we live on your terms and not our own. Some of us here, Lord, we're in a place called the waiting room, and we're waiting, and we're believing. And there's faith, and there's risks, and sometimes things aren't real clear. But Lord, we're trusting you. Lord, we're at that place, some of us, where we're saying, you know what, I've ventured out beyond the boundaries, and I've got myself in some trouble. I would encourage you, come to Jesus. Rest in his grace and his care and his love. Be honest and come clean. And he has this amazing power to redeem. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Lord, wherever we're at in our journey today, we know one thing for sure. You're our kinsman redeemer. You've redeemed us through the cross. You were willing. Your love led you to this place. Lord, I pray, God, for deep surrender in our own hearts, wherever we're at in our journey in life. We're going to trust in your way and your will and your word. It's good. We will not believe the lies of hell that I'm missing out on something that's really good. No, we're missing out on a curse as we run to the Father and take refuge in the shadow of your wings like we talked about last week. Some of us here, God, I believe have had setbacks, but you're going to turn it. You're going to bring setup for the goodness and the glory of God to flow. In Jesus' name.